I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter number 15. Last Lord's Day, we finished 1 Corinthians 11. So we've been going through that book, and as has become a custom, when we finish a chapter or a large section, we typically like to take a, a break and uh, look at something else, and oftentimes that something else is something that would be considered foundational to who we are as Christians and foundational to um, what we believe about our Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. And, you know, a month or so ago, last break I took, when we, I think when we finished chapter 10, we looked at John 15, the first three verses, and we began this um, multi-part study, if you will, on the theme of abiding in Christ, what it means to abide in Christ. And last time we looked at verses 1 through 3 on abiding in Christ as, as the true vine, that He is the true vine and that we are the branches. And we're going to look at a more practical aspect of this subject of abiding in Christ and we're going to look at abiding in the living vine. That is, if you're abiding in Christ, that union between you and Him will produce a fruitful and spiritual life in you that will bear practical marks and carry with it practical promises. So let's look now at John 15, and our text this morning will be verses 4 through 8. John 15, verses 4 through 8. These are the words of God. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Amen. Well, we began this chapter by looking at the work of God, especially the Father, in pruning His people. And we saw there that if you are a true Christian, if you're a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, life will not always be walking in clouds of rainbows and and lily pads. Uh, But life through the providence of God will involve the pruning work of the Father. And sometimes it is as painful as it is necessary, but it is His gracious work, His scalpel of grace, if you will, cutting us and molding us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And what we want to consider now is the outworking of that divine work in our lives, and in the lives really of both true believers and false professors, because we know that it is also the Father who takes the prerogative of assembling the false branches in which is no life, and gathering them together and taking them away to be judged. Remember that the subject of this discourse in John 15 is the nature of being a true disciple. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he gives this discourse just hours 
before his crucifixion. And he gives this discourse not to the world, uh, not to the scribes and the Pharisees, not really even to inquirers or those who, who may be believers, but he gives this discourse to his disciples. To the twelve, at this time it was the eleven. Judas has already been dismissed and he is with eleven believers. His closest friends, if you will. And that should be striking to us because oftentimes when we think about the subject of true salvation or true conversion or the, the, the fundamentals of the gospel, we think, well, that's a message that lost people need. And it is a message that lost people need. Or you might think, well, that's a message that religious hypocrites need. Those who would enter into the church and make a profession of salvation, but yet they, they live as if they've never experienced the grace of God. They need to hear what it means to be a true believer. And yes, they do need to hear that. But Jesus preaches this message to his most faithful, to his core group, if you will, to the bedrock of what will be the New Testament church. And from that, we must understand that whether you've been in the faith 30 years or 30 minutes, there is never a moment in your Christian life in which you outgrow or surpass the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, a church where every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, is just an evangelistic sermon of the basics of Christ and His gospel will probably be a malnourished church. Uh, and I could chase this rabbit probably all morning as to why that is the case and why that's common to find. Uh, why is it that we preach Sunday after Sunday just basic evangelistic sermons and we never teach the deeper things of God? Well, it's because we have, we have forgotten and, and neglected the ministry of preaching the gospel in the public arena. And because we don't preach the gospel in the public arena, the only opportunity we have for preaching the gospel is Sunday morning. <laughs> Uh, So uh, a healthy, full-orbed pulpit ministry will include uh, the whole counsel of the Word of God. Uh, But yet everything we do, whether whether it's 1 Corinthians 11 and and three messages on the the basics and the the workings out of the Lord's Supper, everything we consider, whether it be that or, or something else, must be through the lens and through the filter of the Gospel. Our views of the church must be through the Gospel. Our views of eschatology in the end times must be outflowing from our understanding of the gospel. And so we need this message. We need to be reminded of these things. And what we find as Jesus continues on is that true Christianity is relational. It is personal. It is intimate. How intimate is it? Well, it is as intimate as the connection of a branch and the vine. How intimately is a branch connected to the vine? Well, intimately, indispensably. In fact, if you cut the branch off, it ceases to even have life. True Christianity is relational. Listen, every human being has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Every human being. For most of them, it's not a good one. For most of them, it's a relationship of hostility. For most of them, it's a relationship in which they look at him and look at his life and look at his law and look at his gospel and they reject it. And they say, I want nothing to do with that. 
And it's only by the grace of God, specifically in the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, in regenerating us and giving us new desires and new affections, that our relationship with Him changes, and it's no longer characterized by hostility and aggression, but it's characterized by peace, by love. Well, Jesus gives us several principles in this text whereby we are able to test the state of our relationship with Him. And when I say this text, I mean the the broader context of John 15 all the way down to the end of the chapter, really. But in our text this morning, verses 4 through 8, we find that one of the the marks of a a right relationship with Jesus Christ is that it it is... abiding with him abiding with him notice he says in verse 4 abide in me not just with me but in me abide in me this is a call not just to externally follow him and give credence to maybe what he says or perhaps what he does but it is a call to find our identity and our source of life in no other place than Christ himself. Before you are an American, you are a Christian. Before you are a man, you are a Christian. Before you are a woman, you are a Christian. Before you are white or black, you are a Christian. Before you are a Republican or God help you, a Democrat, you're a Christian. Before you're any of those things. And I I understand the, the rampant abuse Um, isn't it funny that unbelievers want nothing to do with the Word of God until they can twist it to prove their convoluted theory? So I understand the abuse of verses such as in Galatians where Paul says, in Christ there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female, there's no bond, there's no... I understand that that doesn't mean uh, that there's an infinite amount of genders, right? That's not what Paul is saying. God forbid that's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying is that our union with Christ, our abiding in Him, transcends and overcomes and is supreme to every other relationship and every other identifier that we will come to claim as our own in this life. The Christian life, listen, is not so much about what you do, it's about who you are. Do you realize that you can be a devout Muslim with no fundamental change to your nature. Because the definition of the word Muslim, it's an Arabic word that just means one who submits. It doesn't even really matter a whole lot what you believe. It's it's what you do. You don't have to have a change to your nature, a sovereign working of God that happens upon you. No, you just need to change your behavior, what you do. But Christianity is not about what you do, not first and foremost anyways. It's about who you are. And who you are will determine what you do. That's, that's the whole essence of what Jesus is going to tell us this morning. And there are many social programs that can change what you do. If you have a drinking problem, Alcoholics Anonymous has a pretty good success rate of helping you overcome your drinking problem. Religion, and false religion, and social theory, and philosophy can change what you do, but only Jesus changes who you are. And that's your problem. 
Your problem is not just that you sin, it's that you are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, that's why you sin. Or in West Tennessee, maybe this agricultural analogy will help explain some things. Why does a pig roll around in the mud? Well, because he's a pig. And according to his nature, that's what he does as a pig. If you were to put in front of him uh, a perfectly grilled ribeye and, and some caviar and a loaded baked potato, and you were to put that in front of him, and then you were to put a bucket of slop next to him, he'll run right to the slop because he's a pig. Well, the reason why, before your conversion, the reason why you sinned was because you were a sinner. It was according to your nature. You say, well, then that means uh, now that I'm a Christian, I shouldn't sin because I've been given a new nature. Exactly. It's exactly right. Because the gospel doesn't just change what you do, it changes who you are. And so the great struggle in the Christian life is now conforming the practical outworking of your daily life with the reality of who you are. The reality of who you are. Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. You're no longer in bondage to sin. Your nature is not enslaved to that which is evil, but by Christ and by His grace, you've been liberated to walk in newness of life. We don't just receive our life from Christ, but we live in Him. In Him. To abide means to continue. To continue. Receiving life in Christ is not a one-time thing. How many times have you went out to share the gospel with someone and you say, um, have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ? And they will say to you, oh yes, I did that. 20 years ago, when I was 8 years old, I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I was baptized. I did that. Abiding in Christ is not something you did. It's something you do. The question is not, have you repented and have you believed, but are you still repenting and are you still believing? Are you still progressing on in faith to Him? We are to remain persistently and immovably in Him. In Him. Abiding in Him. Now, that does not, if you picture a chart that doesn't look like one straight line that just continuously ascends from one degree of glory to the greater degree of glory. In a true Christian life, there's going to be valleys and there's going to be slumps and there's going to be besetting sins and there's going to be struggles and there's going to be hardships and there's going to be difficult times. But by grace, brothers and sisters, you're moving in that direction. Yes, you sin. But you repent when you sin. Yes, you doubt. But faith drives out your doubt. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This then, this text, is a call to steadfastness in the Christian life. Jesus is saying, one who is truly my disciple is not someone who made a one-time emotional decision that had no impact on their life. That's not a true disciple. A true disciple is one who made their decision to follow me, but by grace has kept following me and is still following me and is still pursuing me. 
When Jesus says, abide in me, he is saying, do not seek your life, your purpose, your power, your strength, your ability, your happiness, or your joy in any other place than me. But notice, this abiding is mutual. Jesus says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. It's a mutual abiding. Our souls abide in Christ, and Christ abides in our souls. In as much as we are in Him, He is in us. This is a mysterious union. Why is it mysterious? Well, because I can't begin to fully explain it to you. This union between Christ and the believer, as Christ, through His Spirit, indwells our souls, and we, through faith, are united to Him. As one Puritan said, all of humanity hangs upon the girdles of two men's breasts. And this morning, each and every one of you are either in Adam or in Christ. You are either represented by that first man who failed in his covenant obligation and plunged his posterity in sin, and you with him are condemned before God, or you are in Christ. You've been taken out of Adam Your relationship with Him has been severed. I remember, you might think this is just a funny, quaint little story, but I'll never forget it. Oftentimes it's the little experiences we have that just always stick with us. When I was at Heritage Reformed Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, they were having a fellowship meal after a Sunday service, and there were these two little boys that were, they were going back and kind of trying to one-up each other on, uh, on who they're related to. And... They had both done their genealogy, and you know, one of them would say, um, one of them would say, "Well, you know, I'm related to Dwight Eisenhower," and the other one would say, "Well, I'm related to Robert E. Lee," and then one would say, "Well, I'm related to Alexander the Great." Oh, well, I'm. You see where the story is going, and I'll never forget Johnny Babb, one of the elders of the church, just a dear old saint of God. He sat down. And they said, who are you related to, Pastor Johnny? And he said, well, I'm related to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Not by physical lineage, not by natural descent, but by faith in the gospel. Mm-hmm. God has taken me and severed my relationship with Adam. I no longer look to him as my father, but I have another who has represented me Amen. before God. Christ in heaven the soul on earth, yet the two are said to be united together as one. In fact, seven times in these four verses, Jesus uses the word abide. So we must begin with this understanding that a true disciple is one who abides in Christ. But what does that mean? Okay, how, do we, how do we know if that condition describes us? There's so many things in the, in the Christian religion that just sound really wonderful, okay? Abiding in Christ. That sounds great, right? Who wouldn't want to do that? But what does it mean practically? How do we know if we're abiding in Christ? So for the rest of our time together, I want to break down uh, this idea of abiding in Christ. And there's, there's several promises here in this text uh, that pertain to this abiding. In other words, if you are abiding in Christ... These things will be true of you. And so as we go through them, I want you to ask yourself, is this true of me? Number one, I want you to see there is a promise of ability received. 
of ability received. Notice in verse 4, at the end of the verse, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. That is not language of permissibility. That is language of ability. A branch has no ability to bear fruit in and of itself. Uh, and if you take a branch and you cut it off of the tree, it will not produce fruit. Now, don't go too far with this analogy, but if you cut off a branch and you put it out in the woods somewhere, what's going to happen? The, the mold and mildew of the world will begin to grow on that branch, but no fruit from within the branch will, will be grown. Jesus says, a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine No more can ye, except ye abide in me. And if that wasn't clear enough, at the end of verse 5, Jesus tells us, For without me, ye can do nothing. Nothing. Jesus is here stating the necessity of this mutual abiding. If the branch is not abiding in the vine, it is lifeless, it is powerless. It can do nothing. Now, we often read this, and we read it as, if you're not abiding in me, you won't be able to do much. If you're not abiding in me, you won't do as much as you could do if you were abiding in me. Because after all, at the end of the day, whether we're abiding in him or not, I mean, we have the power within ourselves to do whatever we jolly well please. That's the mentality that's been drilled in us. And what I pray is that by the Spirit of God, He would cause us to see exactly what He says, that without Him we can do nothing. Nothing. There's no more plain and emphatic way for Jesus to state this truth. And brothers and sisters, many, if not all, of our failures in the Christian life come when we forget this. When we begin to think that we have the ability in ourselves, to do something without Him. Could it be that the the number one most hindering and besetting sin in the church today is the sin of independence? Preachers preach sermons by the power of their own eloquence and theological ability. Christians pray prayers By their own pseudo-spirituality, we read our Bibles based upon the sharpness of our own intellect and we fail to realize that even good things cannot be done to the glory of God in a way that He accepts without Him. Therefore, abiding in Christ is abiding in a sense of our need of Him. Our need of Him. Perhaps that's our greatest problem We have no idea. We do not sense our need of Him. If you go into any church and you you ask the question, what is your greatest struggle in your personal spiritual life? Inevitably, an overwhelming majority of the answers will be my prayer life. Struggle in my prayer life. Why do you struggle in your prayer life? Why do you struggle consistently and regularly calling out to God because you don't sense your need of Him. Someone out in the middle of the ocean that's treading water, barely keeping their head above the surface, drowning, has no problem calling out for help. You don't have to tell Him, 
hey, by the way, you're drowning. You need to be crying out for help. He senses his need. And he cries, save me. Isn't that what Peter did? It took him half a second when he fell into that water. Lord, save me. If we really begin to see our utter need for him, then prayer and reliance on his word and attending to his means of grace, it doesn't become just something we'd like to do. It becomes something we realize, I must do this or I will die. Or my soul will be stranded and starved in a desert. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty, by the way, doesn't just mean that you're sad all the time. It's not what he's talking about there. Spiritual poverty is realizing that in and of yourself, you are spiritually bankrupt before God. Spiritually bankrupt before God. You have nothing to offer Him. You have nothing to bring before Him. You have nothing that you could do that He would accept you on the basis of. There's no gift you could bring. There's nothing you can add to His glory. There's nothing you could say to make Him love you. And Jesus says, when you come to realize that, then you're ready to receive me. Because the only hands that can cling to the hems of my garments are empty hands. And if your hands are full of your own supposed good works and your own failed attempts to earn your salvation, you'll never be able to grab the cross. I heard just this week, the guy that he thought he was he thought he was sounding really pious and, and really wise and you know he was saying, Well, there's this big debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and I'm neither. I just simply believe that God's sovereign and we're responsible, and God has his part and we have our part, and if God does his part and if I do my part, then friend, you have no ability to do anything. You have no no power within you to contribute at all. You've, as Jonathan Edwards said, you've contributed nothing to your salvation except for the sin that has made it necessary. Oh, that God would show us our utter need for Him. And it is by His grace, though it is oftentimes a painful experience. Maybe if none of you have been through this, let me just say, I have. And And you begin to think, maybe I am something after all. Maybe, maybe, maybe I really am all that in a bag of chips. Maybe I really can preach a wonderful sermon because of what a great preacher I am. Maybe I really can teach the Bible or whatever it is that God has called you to do in this life. And you begin to to presume upon your own worth and your own merit and your own abilities and by God's grace, He strikes you down and He shows you just how totally unable you are to do anything. Oh, may God help us to see that we can't tie our shoes in the morning apart from His grace. No ability, 
except for the power that he gives. Well, let me highlight these practical marks very quickly of what this promise of received ability looks like. If God, by his grace, brings you to the point to where you say, I am relying alone upon the ability I receive from Christ to live the Christian life, what does that look like on a very practical level? Well, abiding in Christ is abiding in dependence, first and foremost, upon His grace. Because the opposite, by the way, is true as well. If Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing, what does that mean? With me, you can do all things. If you're abiding in Christ, you are continually trusting Him and relying on His grace alone to uphold and sustain you. What a great comfort, dear child of God, that the grace of Christ has come into the world and it's flowed down from a cross on Calvary's hill and it has cleansed every sin and it has wiped away every stain. And as God says in the book of Romans, if he justifies, who can condemn? Are you depending upon his grace? When you stand before him on that great day and he says to you, Why should I let you in? Will you be able to say, not because of anything I've ever done, but only because of what that man on that middle cross has done for me. Abiding in Christ is abiding in the perception of His glory. See, if you realize that you have no ability in and of yourself, then you understand that any good that comes from you is not due unto you and your credit and your glory, but unto His. And without this perception, the Christian would really be of all men most miserable. And because the more we grow in our poverty of spirit, the more we grow in a dependence upon His grace, and when we grow in a dependence upon His grace, the more we see Him as all sufficiently glorious. That He has done it all. That he's finished the work. That he's completed his sacrificial atonement on Calvary's cross. And abiding in Christ is abiding in the sufficiency of his word. Because I have no ability within myself to do anything, to think for myself, to make decisions for myself, to figure out what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, I must be continually relying upon the revealed truth in the word of God. I have said this to you before, and I'll say it to you again. Christian, never be ashamed in the face of opposition when you're pushed on your convictions and pushed on your belief. Never be ashamed to say, because the Bible says. Because the Bible says. Why do you go to that church? Why do you do this? Why do you practice this and not practice it? Because the Bible says. That's it. Oh, so you don't think for yourself? I try not to. Oh, so you're not open-minded? I try not to be. I mean, I I don't want to be any more open-minded than this book in front of me. Uh, You don't have the ability to think for yourself? No, I don't. I I need this this book to guide me and direct me. Because it says it's a light unto my feet. That's what it says. And I pray that every day God would give me a greater dependence upon His Word. And again, just like your prayer life. It's like your prayer life. If you really believe that, guess what will happen to you? You'll go to this book and you'll open its pages 
And you'll not just uh, read two chapters so that you can check off your little reading plan. But you'll, you'll say, Lord, teach me, feed me, guide me, direct me. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you're depending upon a received ability from Christ if you're not relying on his word as your rule and guide. This is really one of the the surest and most basic tests of genuine Christianity. True disciples are marked by a life of obedience to the word of God. One of the great problems of our day the reason why this makes us uncomfortable is because many, especially in Reformed and Calvinistic circles, don't like to talk about practical obedience anymore. They want to sit around and polish up their five points, but they don't want to do anything with their good theology. And so you have churches where so long as the theology is great and grand, and so long as we can sit around I think John MacArthur talked about a group he knew of that he said they like to stare down and gaze at their five-point navels. Five-point nasal gazing. You know, where we just sit around and we use all these big words and all these big terms and we talk about all this great theology and how many books we've read and all that we're studying, but it doesn't have any practical effect on the way we live our lives. That's a problem. It's a problem. And there are too many Christians who love to talk about their theology but have no interest in living it out. Living it out. Keep it on paper, preacher. But don't apply it to my life. And talk about this, this abiding in Christ, receiving ability from Him. Have you ever wrestled with and struggled with this question of how come preaching is just so powerless today? I mean, we of all generations have more helps. Books galore. I mean, I have in my smartphone more resources than were available to John Calvin throughout the entirety of his life. Logos Bible software, seminary education. Yet our preaching is just so powerless. But yet God used George Whitfield, who had nothing but an English Bible... Matthew Henry's commentary and a horse to turn the world upside down. It's because those men of God in previous generations understood something about theology and they understood that large theological brains were not the goal of ministry. But theology was always meant to have a transformative effect upon the one who came to believe it. They weren't afraid to preach in the third person. They weren't afraid to say, here's the text, here's what it means, here's what you must do. It wasn't just this theoretical thing of let me give you an hour-long lecture on the doctrine of, of union with Christ, but let me preach to you and explain union with Christ. And now let me tell you what you must do because of this. And what you must do is relinquish dependence in yourself, uh, relinquish confidence in the flesh, relinquish uh, 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 reliance upon your own ability and your own wit and your own skill and your own determination and trust only in Him. No one loves a good theological discussion more than yours truly. I love it. I eat this stuff for breakfast. I could talk about it all day long. But if that's where it ends, if it just ends with a conversation, then the discussion is pointless. 
What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means that we have an ability received. And that ability comes through depending upon His grace, through seeing Him as glorious, and then in turn having a reliance in His Word, not just as a source that fills our brain with information, but as a guide that affects the way we live our life. Secondly, there's a promise in this text of abundant fruitfulness. Abundant fruitfulness. Notice, he says, He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. This is a promise. Those who abide will bring forth fruit. They will bring forth fruit. And not just fruit, but much fruit. If you abide in Christ, it can't not be that way. There's no such thing as the doctrine of the carnal Christian. You know what I mean by that? This teaching that you can make a decision for Christ and you can have Him as Savior but not as Lord. Now how come, because I know we all repudiate the doctrine of the carnal Christian and I don't feel the need to beat that dead horse. So let's talk about something that practically affects us. Why is it that we're Calvinists on the doctrine of justification, but Arminians when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is how come we have no problem, we have no problem speaking with the utmost definite certainty about God's ability to justify. We have no problem preaching sermons saying, God will save His people. He will wipe away their sins. He will declare them righteous. He will do it. His purposes will not fail. He will surely bring them to Himself. He'll justify them, declare them righteous, so on and so forth. But then, when it comes to sanctification, we don't speak with the same level of confidence, oftentimes. We don't get in the pulpit and say, and when God justifies them, He's going to sanctify them. He's going to make them holy. They will produce good works. And if they don't, they were never justified. We don't like to talk that way. Why? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Makes us uncomfortable. Because if we really believe that sanctification is just as sure as justification, the only conclusion that we can come to is that there are a lot of people that profess justification and don't have it, and the evidence that they don't have it is that there's no sanctification. Because while sanctification and justification are distinct works of God, and while one is punctiliar and definite, that is, justification is not progressive, It is accomplished in a single act of time by the power of God. The grace that produces justification is the same grace that produces sanctification. It's the same grace. In other words, everybody loves Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, and the gifts of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we forget about verse 10. For you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Can I say something that might shock you? Good works are necessary for your salvation. They are. Now, they don't have a causal necessity. The Puritans were, were wonderful at 
systematizing and categorizing. When you read the Puritans on this, you'll find that they had, they had two categories for things that are necessary for salvation. There was one category that was a causal necessity. And in causal necessity, the only thing that's causally nece- necessary for your salvation is a repentant faith in Jesus Christ. But then there are all of these other things that God has ordained to be normative outworkings of your salvation that he says if you don't have them, it's the sure manifestation that you don't have the causal necessity. He saved you by grace through faith, but he didn't save you unto a life of lasciviousness and worldliness. He saved you to be the workmanship of Jesus Christ for good works. That's why you were saved. So you're not saved by your good works, but you're saved and it works. Abundant fruitfulness is not the quality of a select few super spiritual Christians. I love reading church history. I love reading biographies. And sometimes I get criticized for quoting these men too much, but they're my friends. I live with them. I literally live with them. They stay in my study, and they're always there. And I can access them and have conversations with them through their writings, because they being dead yet speak. But let me share with you a danger of, of this. There's several dangers, but one of them is reading the lives of, of men and women that were greatly used of God and thinking that somehow they were in some super spiritual category all by themselves and you're just never going to be there. Well, yeah, I mean, God used George Whitfield, but that was George Whitfield. Surely I can't do that. Well, yeah, God used Elizabeth Elliot, but I mean, that was Elizabeth Elliot. I, I, surely I'm not going to be that. Which, if they were still here, those saints of God would tell you that the grace that they partook of that enabled them, the ability received to produce abundant fruits for the kingdom of God is available to you. It's for you in Christ. And there is this promise here that those who abide in Christ will produce much fruit. Much fruit. And the reason why fruit bearing is so certain in true disciples is because the fruit that comes forth from them is the fruit of the vine. When we talk about producing good works... Listen to what I've already told you. I'm not, I'm not telling you that, well, now that you're a Christian, you need to hone in your skills and hone in your craft so that you can do all of these good things for God. Well, what I'm telling you is that if you're abiding in Him and you've received this ability, then by His grace, He's going to work in you. The perseverance of the saints is really the perseverance of Christ in the saints. And so I can stand before you this morning and I can say, all of my faults and all of my failures and all of my besetting sins, which are many, that's all on me. I take full credit for them. But any good thing that I've ever done to the glory of God and the good of His people, to Him be glory alone. Amen. To Him be glory alone. As, as our brother Paul Washer likes to say, there are no great men of God. There are only weak Pathetic men in the hands of a mighty God. Thirdly, there's a promise here. 
of the annihilation of dead branches. The annihilation of dead branches. Notice in verse 6, he gives us some positive promises. Now he gives us a negative promise. Uh, All throughout the Bible you'll find that uh, when a truth is stressed, it's often stated both in the positive and in the negative. So now he says in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Just as certain as the abundant fruitfulness of the abiding branches is the destruction of those branches that do not abide. And this judgment is successive. In fact, it's one of the most sobering and scary realities of the Christian life when we see this judgment take place in the life of someone who professes Christ. When they begin to turn away from the faith. Notice, he is cast forth. That is, he's taken out of the vineyard. He's removed from the visible people of God and he's not identified with the saints. This is why a healthy church, anyways, is concerned when a member of the body ceases to faithfully attend. Uh, They're separating themselves from, from the vine. They're separating themselves from that source of life. And what happens when you separate yourself from the vine? Well, you wither. He withers. He decays. He corrupts. He wastes away. He becomes nothing. Then he is gathered. Gathered for the purpose of judgment. Why? Because a dead branch is good for one thing. Kindling a fire. That's all it's good for. When it loses its its vitality, when it loses its life, uh, it becomes so easy to just snap and break. It's not durable. It's not sustainable. It really is good for nothing but kindling a fire. And so he's gathered, and then he's taken to this fire. Well, he will burn. Certainly, this is a picture of judgment. Now, imagine the night in which Jesus gave this discourse as he's speaking with his disciples, and as they were thinking of this imagery and this metaphor of true branches and and dead branches. Pretty soon, they were going to see the revelation of this judgment in one Judas Iscariot. He was a dead branch. Though he professed faith and life in the vine, he bore no fruit. He had no vital union with Christ, and so he would be taken away, gathered and judged. And you say, Jesus, why are you mentioning this in this text? It almost seems a little out of place because he's giving us these promises and this description of what it looks like to abide. And then right smack dab in the middle, he gives us this stark warning. Why? Why, Jesus? Because, as Martin Luther said, when we see these shipwrecks of the faith, though they terrify us, we dare not turn our eyes away from them. What does he mean by that? God does this so that we may see it and be warned ourselves. If you're not abiding in Him, if you're not depending upon Him, if you're not receiving all ability from Him, and if you're not bearing much fruit in Him, do not be assured of the state of your soul. That's the message that Christ is giving to us in this promise. The fourth promise in verse 7, as we continue, notice He says, If ye abide in me, 
and my words abide in you. Again, we see this connection of abiding in Christ and abiding in the word of Christ. The the person of Christ and the word of Christ is never far separated from one another in the word of God. He says, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. So there is a promise here of answered prayer. Of answered prayer. Jesus connects his abiding word with effectual prayer. And prayer and the word of God are twin graces. Where you have one, you will have the other. And when the word of Christ abides in us, the promises of God found in the word turn into our petitions. And God grants these holy desires because they are in accordance with the words of Christ. Here's what God is not saying in John 15. He's not saying, well, if you abide in Christ, then God will grant you all of your worldly desires and all of your lusts and all of the toys that you would like to have for yourself. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why does God give you the desires of your heart when you delight in Him? Because when you delight in Him, He is the desire of your heart. And He answers your prayer and He gives you Himself. Asking what we, we will of the Father is in reference to the context of this fruit bearing. You wonder why God doesn't answer your prayer? Maybe it's because you're praying for your own amusement and your own self-interests and not for a greater harvest of spiritual fruits. When we pray as a church, whether it be Sunday morning or whether it be in our Wednesday night prayer meetings, there is a place for petition. There is a place to pray for health needs, financial needs, and different things. But oh, may the content of our prayer always redound to, Lord, make us bear greater fruits for you. Make us be fruit bearers for the kingdom. And when we pray that in sincere faith, He grants it. He grants the prayer. The closer a man or woman lives to Christ, the more intimately they abide, the more effectual their prayer life will be. Not because they learn how to pray really well and they learn how to twist God's arm better than everyone else, but because as they get closer to Christ, their desires conform to His will, and prayers that conform to the will of Christ are the kind of prayers that God delights to answer. So if you're struggling in your prayer life, if you're struggling with not seeing answers to prayer, maybe you should pray and ask God to conform your desires to His will. Lord, help me to want what You want. Help me to be passionate about the things that You're passionate about. And what is God passionate about? He's passionate about your holiness. He's passionate about your fruit bearing. He's passionate about your abiding in His Son. And the opposite is also true. Why is there so little prayer? Perhaps because there is so little secret communion with Christ and His Word. See, if you read three Bible verses and a paragraph from your devotional in the morning, and then you go out and you fill your mind and you fill your heart with the filth of the world... Don't be surprised when you come home and struggle to have a satisfying prayer life. In the same way, if you wake up in the morning and you kiss your wife goodbye and then you go out and spend all day flirting with another woman, don't be surprised when your marriage is unfulfilling. 
this is an agricultural analogy. This vine and this branch. And in order for the garden to grow, in order for the, the plant to be healthy, we need to be faithful to tend to it and to cultivate the crop. To cultivate the crop. You say, how do I cultivate my relationship with Christ? Through His Word. Through prayer. Through spending time with, through His church. Through all of these means that He's given to you. And lastly, in verse 8, there's a fifth and final promise. And that is a promise of ascribed glory to God. Ascribed glory to God. Notice he says in verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. This is the ultimate end of our abiding in Christ. To glorify the Father. Nothing brings more honor to the husbandman than the abundant fruitfulness of the vine. And when God sees you and He sees the life you used to live and the sins you used to drink down like they were water and the evils that used to characterize who you were and then He sees how His Son has went into the world and has redeemed you and has dragged you out of your filth and has cleansed you and has put new life within you and now you don't live unto yourself but you live unto the glory of Christ. The Father sees that from heaven and He is glorified. He is glorified. Let me encourage you with this, Christian. Don't think lightly of even the smallest thing done in sincere faith. If you, by God's grace, woke up this morning and with a heart of sincere faith read a chapter of the Word of God, a thousand hallelujahs. Because apart from His grace, you'd have no desire to do even that. My house is scattered about with all of these little tiny pots that have little plants in them that my wife is growing. And I don't know how it all works, but you know, it's like they graduate, they get big enough, and then they go outside in the garden. And sometimes I'll be sitting at my desk in my study, and my wife will run into my study with a little pot. And there'll be this little tiny seedling in this little pot And she's just jumping up and down going, look, look, it's sprouting, it's sprouting, it's sprouting. And I'm looking at it like, what are you talking about? I hardly see anything. But she's excited over just this little little sprout. This little sprout. Why? Because she planted that seed in that dirt and there was a time in which there was nothing. There was a time in which there was just dirt. And she planted that seed in that dirt. And she watered it, and she watched, and she watered it, and she watched. And then a few days went by, a week goes by, two weeks goes goes by, and then this sprout comes up. There was a time in which there was nothing in your heart but the blackest of night. There was no joy in your soul. There was no communion with God. There was no thirst or hunger after righteousness. Uh, But then the seed of the gospel, by the Spirit of God, was planted within you. You were regenerated. (laughs) And you were regenerated, but guess what? You didn't get it all figured out right away. It took you some time to learn some things about the Bible. It took you some time to figure out what is true and what is not true. You had some besetting sins that you struggled with in the first few months, few years of your Christian life that still haunt you to this day, but the seed was there. The seed was there. Justification, the seed was there. And God is the husbandman. He's been working it out. 
He's been cultivating that crop. As you've been abiding with Christ, just as that seed has been abiding in that soil, you've been abiding with Christ. When that fruit begins to sprout, when the lights begin to turn on, when your faith produces positive, active righteousness through the glorious truth of sanctification, it glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Father. He rejoices over it. He rejoices over it. Let me tell you this. God is not in heaven. God is not in heaven looking down upon you with a magnifying glass just waiting for you to sin so He can go, I knew it. I knew they were a failure. I'm disappointed in them again. No, God is in heaven looking down upon you. The only way He looks down upon you is because all of your sins are already taken away in Christ. But He's looking down upon you with eager expectation because He knows that His Son has died for you and His Spirit is at work in you and you're going to produce fruits. And when you do, He's glorified. Look up and see His smiling face. When you read that chapter of the Bible in the morning, when you have a time of prayer, when you lead your family in family worship, when you come to church, when you sing the hymns of the faith, He's glorified, Christian. Abiding in Christ. Is that true of you? Do you have this ability received to, to live the Christian life from Him? Do you have answers to prayer because they're prayed in conformity to His will? Do you have abundant fruitfulness that characterizes your Christian life? And do you have ascribed glory to God as you bear fruit unto His honor and His glory? If you do, then keep doing that. Keep living the Christian life. Keep slugging it out. Keep abiding in Christ. And if you don't, there's only one place that you must flee to. And that is to the vine itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. See Him crucified for you, dead for you, buried for you, raised again for you. May God help us to trust in Him, to abide in faith in His Son. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us through these feeble, scattered words. May You use them in the lives of Your children. May You grow us by faith and cause us to grow in our dependence and trust and love for you. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.